Lord God, this morning we thank you for a new day, the mercies that you have granted us to be here. Lord, for uh, uh, the incredible way you've uh, touched our hearts uh, through these sessions uh, in these last couple of days, to see the miracles of your grace, Lord, the uh, faithfulness that you have provided uh, to us and to the many that uh, have served you, both now and uh, preceding us. Lord, you've given us uh, gifts and uh, interests and uh, aptitudes around healing. What does it mean to heal, Lord? I pray you'd uh, allow us to be students, even as we talk today about uh, being teachers. I just pray, Lord, you'll just give us your Spirit's presence here as you've uh, promised. And, uh, Lord, that we would together uh, give praise and glory to you the rest of our days. In Jesus' name, amen. So, good morning. Um, my name is Bruce Dahlman. Um, I uh, work through AIM uh, and have been working in Africa since 1992. Um, I want to uh, place myself uh, amongst uh, many who have uh, gone before and... Uh, to him so you know how important I am. Uh, <laughs> I, I met him in uh, 1980 when I was a medical student in Congo for a couple of months and uh, came through to Javi as they were finishing up their first large building phase and met Dick and uh, whether he know, remembers it or not, uh, he sent me on my life's trajectory into primary care. Um, he says, yes, if you come out to the mission field, you're going to have to know a lot about a lot of things. And if you're thinking you're going on to surgery, we can help you with some of those things because what you have to do in surgery isn't quite as much, uh, it might not line up with all the things you're going to have to learn if you go through a surgical program. So from that I said, well, oh, looks like I need to be a family doctor then. So that's what I've been. And the Lord's guided me into uh, uh, educational field uh, as the years have gone by. And I'm not here to tell my story. We're here to tell the story about how God has used medical education as not a tool for missions, okay? Medical education, medicine, education, and uh, taking authority over spiritual powers is what Christ asks the church to do. And I want to take the first few minutes um, to uh, just to go into that. Let's um, just go through our objectives. I'd like to discover the diversity of roles in which you can mentor and disciple Majority World Servant Healers who will be partners with you in reaching the unreached peoples. And I'd like to have you embrace the joy of building long-term relationships um, with partner health professions educators to share and learn together, ministering in Jesus' power to the spiritual, emotional, physical needs of all. Those are my objectives uh, for this session. So, not small. Um, Our... our, our, um, if we're going to have a schedule at all, it's going to be flexible because there's going to be a lot of interaction uh, with uh, some very talented people that God has used and raised up to, to work in this arena. And I'm trying to give them as much time as possible, but I wanted to set a stage um, for what I call uh, a theology of uh, medical missions. I want to start this by examining something that I haven't really looked at at length until this last year when after I was at the Medical Missions Summit that CMDA puts together mission leaders uh, every year, September. This is September of 2013, and a few of us got together after that and said, let's, let's delve into this a little bit. Um, and for our own uh, in, in edification and information, and ended up working on uh, something I call uh, the commissions of the New Testament. And as I examined those by putting scriptures in columns, preaching, teaching, healing, and dealing with uh, taking authority over spirits, it, uh, it, it started to impress on me just the diversity of what our call is. So Jesus was commissioned. Um, there's the famous uh, passage in Matthew where he takes the scroll in Isaiah, and that whole verse, what is, what is his commission from Isaiah, you know, um, and, and that becomes the basis of, of how he worked. And then it, it explains just very soon after that, uh, and this verse is familiar to all of you, 
that Matthew 4.23, that Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching, proclaiming the good news, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Healing every disease among the people. So Christ demonstrated the commission that he was given almost immediately. And of course, Matthew then goes on to uh, the miracles uh, in the early years of his, uh, year of his ministry are, are all laid out for us. And I went and took those passages and laid them all out in proclaiming, healing, teaching. And it turned out that of the 60, 70 instances of those three things, healing and dealing with spirits were in two-thirds of those verses, many times together. That's, all he, that's how he did it, integrally, all the time. Then he sent 12 disciples. He says, go, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out the demons, and then proclaim this message to them as you're doing all of these things. The kingdom of God is near. So what does the kingdom of God is near mean? Well, Jesus wasn't physically present with them as they were doing this. It was his ambassadors, the disciples, healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing the lepers, driving out demons, and proclaiming a message. And yes, there are verses that talk about the message of reconciliation that's required as well as we get right with God. Then he sends out 72. Here's his commission to 72. The Lord appointed 72 and sent them two by two, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near. Here we don't even have uh, uh, any more message. That's it. That's their, that's their commission. Go heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near. So as we go and heal the sick, we are proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. Then they came back and said, even the demons submit to us. I call them the final commissions. Matthew, what is it? What's the final commission of Matthew? Okay, it's go and make disciples in Matthew. Okay, what's Mark? It's go and preach. Yeah, okay. Any other commissions in that group of final commissions? There's one more commission. Do you know where it is? Acts 1 8. Acts 1 okay. Yeah, you're right. There's two. <laughs> There's one in John. Yeah, I was reading about, you know, trying to study more about this, and uh, came on John Stott's book on missions. And uh, he says, I've had a conversion. John Stott. How many know about John Stott? All right, very well-known evangelical author, just died here a year or so ago. John Stott says, I've had a conversion. My commission is now John 20, 21. Why? And Jesus said, peace, shalom, be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Okay, the continual present. I am sending you continually. And with that, he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. I would submit to you that this commission has a lot more packed into it than we've maybe given credit to. Because as you start thinking about what is it he's proclaiming is peace, shalom, health, healing. We, we have the word peace because we don't know how to put anything bigger into it. What are you all for? World peace. You know, that's about as big a dynamic as you can think of, right? But peace means, you know, wholeness around body, mind, and spirit and the uh, Greek equivalent. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So how did Christ send the Father? I mean, how did the Father send the Son? Sorry. Yeah, we just went through it, isn't it? He came there to preach, to teach, to heal, to proclaim victory over spirits that were keeping people bound. That's how God sent the Son. I am now sending you in that same way. Yes, discipling is a part of it. Yes, preaching is a part of it. But yes, healing is always a part of it too. Yes, dealing with spiritual bondage is a part of it too. And those of us that have worked in Africa, yeah, we've seen it close hand. Those of you that are working in America, you're seeing it close hand too, that bondage of spiritual. And the warfare that it takes to release those captives 
is just as real here as it is there. So, a little um, uh, session on just framing what we are. And of course, Jesus, I've gone back and looked too at, at how does Jesus teach. And the way he teaches, of course, is that interactive way that uh, helps people discover what God is saying to them in their lives. And so you put that together, it seems like those that are dealing with healing, bringing the word, teaching, taking authority over spirit, seems like we might be following in what Christ was and asked us to be. So I would think medical education missions ought to be the highest calling there is. Y'all agree? Yep. Amen. I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in a good audience here, right? Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the things that, uh, that Christ exemplifies is, is uh, what we do, and, and I think what uh, Christ asks us to do as we come alongside people who are studying are encouraged to be healers, all right? Not just doctors and nurses, and we put titles on it, but I like to call them healers because ultimately it's all about bringing uh, the, the, the peace of Christ, all right, in all of its aspects, you know, to not only the persons we're uh, that are focused on in front of us in the consultation room, but those that are trying to learn to be healers also need the peace of Christ as well. And what does that mean? It means coming alongside. Can that be done in a two-week mission trip? We can debate that, but I'm not going to debate it with you very long because you can't. All right, it's pretty hard. You can you can have successive relationships, you know, with somebody in a short-term experience at a place that you might be working. And that's better than a one-shot deal. But I would submit to you that really rubbing off of what Christ can be in their life and what they can then uh, be to the students uh, beyond them is all about relationship, and that's about time, and that's about committing to a long while. So what about this medical education missions? PAX has been around how long now, Bruce? 1997. Uh, it's been around a long time. Uh, we started working in... Uh, and the idea of, of family medicine education in Kenya started in 1995. Program didn't get up till 2005. Okay, but I, uh, when I'm doing talks on different subjects, I, I like to look back at the history a little bit. I just want to make sure that you all realize that we're standing on the shoulders of some pretty big giants in medical education as a part and a way of, of being a part of, of that great commission. Um, it of course goes back all the way to Christ. Um, but in more recent modern times, um, I just want to let you know and, and encourage you to pick up a book um, to read about the history of, of medical mission. Sent to Heal by uh, Grundman is a book that anybody who's interested in medical mission should have um, had a time to, to look through. Why? Because Lessons learned are always important to do early rather than late in careers, okay? And lessons learned from people who've gone before are, are pretty important. It also is very instructive, sent to heal. Uh, he's a, a Grunman, is, uh, had Valparaiso. He's a, a German um, um, by birth uh, but uh, migrated here. But his research is just voluminous, and the, the footnoting is incredible from both the original sources in German and in English and some beyond, uh, tracing uh, efforts of the church to get it to, to be involved in healing from the very beginning. And the, quite frankly, the, uh, the history is a bit sordid. Um, medical mission was always this thing that was pushed to the side as being something that is not the gospel. It's just, if you've got to do it, all right, but don't you make that more than your preaching. That's the way mission leaders treated medicine, yeah. Very good, thank you. So you can do the quick version. That might be a way to get you uh, thirsty for wanting to see the whole thing. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. But uh, he traces, of course, then Peter Parker is one of the ones considered early in, uh, in China, in Canton, and, and looking at how medical mission might be the, the open door, if you will, for people to be interested in hearing about the gospel because what he had to offer in, in ophthalmologic uh, care and surgery was actually very valued by uh, the businessmen in that uh, community, and it basically became the open. The opening of China was basically through medical missions. 
if you truth be told. And from that, medical missionaries went on to go throughout all of China, setting up, you know, hospitals, several hundred hospitals, India the same thing, Africa the same thing. Uh, and that age from the 1850s on through uh, the First World War was the explosion and some into uh, before the Second World War, you know, hundreds of hospitals across this uh, globe were set up by people like you and me responding to messages they were hearing. Most of the time, lone rangers going out, building the place, training the folks to be the, the carers, and, uh, and then carrying on. So that, that history is, is, is large, it's huge, and it's also important in terms of uh, um, giving us encouragement towards the last frontiers of how we can be involved in bringing good news to unreached groups that are still there that haven't heard. They did their task, we have ours to go as well. So that little parenthesis is just my encouragement to, uh, to uh, gain encouragement and resolve based on uh, the heritage that we have from those that have been before. So the main uh, sessions here is to give panels a chance to help us understand different ways in which uh, education is, is, has been, um, I hate to use the word used, okay, because educating about health is being Jesus' um, feet and hands in a way that he was. So it's not being used, it's being and I want these folks who are assembled to help us understand different ways of being uh, in the terms of their, their work as, as healers and as educators. And so we're going to call uh, uh, people to the podium. The first, uh, Jim uh, and Chil Suchoy. Uh, uh, and uh, and uh, let's see, who did I have? Oh, Bill. Bill Evans, were you going to do on postgraduate training here too? Yeah. Good. So, Jim, join them here. And uh, I'll give the microphones to them, um, and we'll go and... Supposed to do a presentation? Yeah, yeah. So I'll give you okay. that, and let's see if I can give you this. Okay. And there's more than one. <laughs> this is crazy, but... This is going to take more time than the talk. All right, let's just stick this right okay. there. So I have uh, four minutes to convince you... Oops, wait a minute. Why is that doing that? So, I've got four minutes to convince you. Hey, what did you do this? I don't know, but maybe we should just... I'm going to take this off. That's mine. Oh, no, no. Let's, uh, uh, let's just... Uh, I'll, I'll run it from here. Why don't you start speaking and I'll get you... Okay. Uh, so... My, my four minutes are all gone already. Uh, and for those of you who were at my talk yesterday morning, forget it. Bruce just shot it down. But I'm putting on a different hat today, and I'm talking about using medical education, teaching in universities long term. Uh, so should have it here in just a minute. There we go. Okay, so why do I think... Uh, Teaching at a medical university is worthwhile as a mission field. Well, I think we have opportunities to show the love of Christ. I think one of the big things is that we can influence a whole generation of physicians, both medically and spiritually. Another big thing is modeling teaching as a worthwhile career. I can tell you in most countries that's not seen as a good career. And then I think very important is that we can leave something behind when we leave. I think if you want to be an influence and if you want to be able to share your faith, you have to do that by developing genuine and caring relationships. And Bruce is absolutely correct. Doing it long-term works better than short-term. But not all of us can do long-term. I want to give you three examples. First one is Jim Jewell, one of my heroes. Uh, he's the man at the end of the arrow there. Jim was a thoracic surgeon. Uh, did, uh, he retired about 55 he went to uh, a mission hospital in western part of uh, uh, Zambia. And then he was going to come home after about eight years to a comfortable retirement. But he was asked to go to the uh, Department of Surgery and to teach. And now, some 15 years later, Jim is in his 80s, and he still spends six months a year teaching students and residents there. He has had a tremendous influence, not only on the students there, 
but in many of the medical schools in the southern country, a lot of the countries in south, uh, southern part of Africa. The second person is Cheryl Snyder. She was an ER physician in southwestern Washington, felt a call to missions. She'd been working in a new medical school at Yakima, Washington, and she heard about this medical school that's going to be starting in Zambia. So she went to work there, but it didn't happen. And she got a position of doing, uh, at the University of Zambia as well, uh, doing faculty development and working with the students and running their skills lab, another opportunity. Plus that, once she got there, she actually started a training program uh, for chaplains to work in hospitals. The third one is Dr. Lo Cheng, who was one of my students when I was teaching in Singapore. Uh, he was a missionary in southwest China, and he was hired by one of the local hospitals that was a teaching hospital for the local medical university, again, to do faculty development and to work with students. And he's had an opportunity uh, not only to be a witness, but to bring together those few Christian students and faculty, and they meet weekly. So there are a lot of opportunities. There are new medical schools. This is not a gas station. When my wife looked at this talk, she said, why do you have a picture of a gas station? <laughs> this is a new medical school in Addis Ababa associated with the Korean hospital, and you may hear a little bit more about that uh, coming up. Uh, they, many of these new medical schools, I have some reservations about many of them, but all of them have either inexperienced faculty or very few faculty. They're all looking for people to come help them develop curriculums, to teach basic science and to do faculty development, as well as to work with the students both clinically uh, and uh, in teaching. So in summary, uh, I think we have an opportunity to influence medical students, both clinically and spiritually. We can be a role model as an excellent teacher. And another role model is teaching uh, students how to treat patients with care and respect. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Mm -hmm. And we'll just move right on to uh, Oops, Dr. Choi. They didn't give me any training in this work. <laughs> okay. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Jisoo Choi. I'm a general internist from Tulsa, Oklahoma. I've been involved with uh, uh, medical education in Central Asia and Kazakhstan and and uh, most recently for the past five years in Malawi and now with Ethiopia. That uh, building that looks like gas station is the uh, Myungsung Medical College. It's a Christian medical college. Studied just two years ago and now in his third year. So I was back there a month ago teaching third-year medical students. So uh, any of you, uh, whether you're attending physician or in teaching or even residents, you can come and join and and participant in short term, and of course we're looking for long-term volunteers, and uh, just like Dr. Jim Smith said, uh, uh, there, there are so many needs. Uh, many of you can uh, come and teach in various fields, so the fields are open, ready for harvest. And uh, I got some booklets and uh, pamphlets, so if you are interested, you can come pick it up at the end of the talk. Thank you. So just to, uh, to add, uh, just so he's talking about uh, the Myungsung Christian Medical School, um, there's at least five or six that, on my count of medical schools uh, in Africa from Christian universities that are, have opened or are opening over the next two or three years. Um, medical education is a prestigious thing within any educational institution. Administrators look at it as filling up a lecture hall and making lots of money from tuition unfortunately, and they don't quite get that, you know, uh, medical education is more about art and more about uh, apprenticeship and more about more uh, teaching ratios that are more than 100 or, or much uh, less than 100 to 1. But be that as it may, they're starting. And what that those ratios mean is that there's a huge need for especially the clinical people to come alongside medical schools and the teaching hospitals they're affiliating with to be doing that mentoring and doing that apprenticing because the, uh, there is no other way to get the, the, the skills, in my opinion, uh, of medicine and of that patient interaction uh, to be taught. Uh, 
Uh, and yet that's, they, they learn by their mistakes, which is, you know, not the greatest way to, to learn medicine. Lots of stories could be told, but that's the bottom line of why PAC started and why we're working with family medicine education and all the rest of us in different areas. So uh, being just boots on the ground, sharing your caring for a patient is the number one requirement for medical education. It's not long lists of degrees. It's good if you get better education and move into it, but it's all about modeling what it means to be a Jesus in front of a person who's in need. That's what it's about. And so I think if, if, if you doubt your credentials to be a teacher, um, I want to encourage you that you already have the credentials because of who you are in Jesus Christ. Okay? So let's uh, move to the next one. Bill? Right there. Is this the microphone? Yeah, there, you got to do both. Okay. Thank you, Bruce. Bruce asked me to be on this panel to talk about working in places with greater security needs, specifically what we would describe as closed or creative access nations that you cannot go as a missionary. Because of the security needs and the dangers, I'm not going to talk with specific names of countries. I'm going to say that I've worked in Central Asia directing a postgraduate medical education program in family medicine with residents, at one time with seven faculty from the local country as well as 21 residents. The opportunities for influ influencing their lives was huge in terms of demonstrating and living Christ along with the other expatriates who were in service in the country. Over a period of years, we saw tremendous transformation in the lives of the people that we worked with. The agency that I work with is dedicated to holistic missions, and I think that's what you've been hearing from all of us on this panel to this point. We don't go with our work being the excuse for being in the location. Our work is the reason for being there. And when we do our work with excellence, representing the kingdom well, then we have that opportunity to represent Christ. I never expected to be able to talk much about Jesus when I was working in Central Asia, Yet most days I had my residents and faculty ask me why I was there. And I could talk about who Jesus was to me. We taught a code of ethics to our residents. These were not un-Islamic values. They were just simply values they did not hear in the mosque. We taught them first that the patient is your priority. Second, respect. Third, integrity. Fourth, stewardship. Fifth, the sanctity of life. Sixth, lifelong learning. And finally, number seven, excellence in care. The second value, respect, had to do with respecting the patient irregardless of what tribe the patient was from, their economic status, their gender. To treat women as well as men, when you put on the white coat, it didn't matter if you were male or female. It didn't matter if the patient was male or female. You had to treat them well. And we found that our students, our residents, and faculty incorporated these values of medical care into their life values and progressive transformation through the years in their work. The opportunity to mentor and change people's lives working in these countries is powerful, but it depends upon us doing our work well. We don't have to do it perfectly. Often we teach them the most through our mistakes because we can admit those mistakes. We can say we don't know and go to the text, go to the Internet, for example, up to date, which is available in low access settings, and find the information with them and teach those values. There are many opportunities. I'm talking specifically about postgraduate medical education. You can do in-service medical school training. One of the very powerful tools I hope you have heard about these last few days has been community health evangelism. In our part of the world, we call it community health education. You have the same opportunities to teach and demonstrate the values of Christ. Bruce, I'm going to leave it for questions. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> One more. 
Thank you, Bill. Um, I'm going to ask one more person to come, not on the slide there, but uh, another ministry and way of uh, a mode, if you will, of uh, doing work is um, through uh, a unique thing that... Microphones. Two microphones. Yep. Yeah. You've seen the drill. <laughs> one more here. I'm, I'm asking somebody from another tribe to come. <laughs> uh, I speak English. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm learning. Yes, so Dr. Uh, Richard Vincent is a uh, um, former uh, cardiology, uh, cardiologist and professor at uh, Brighton University and works with a group called Prime, Prime International, which he'll explain just briefly in his three, four minutes. Thank you. <laughs> so very briefly. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. I know... Uh, uh, Bruce for a while, and uh, he's also part of the Prime Organization Partnerships in International Medical Education is what we're called. There's some information over there. Of course, we've only got four minutes. We're based in the UK. We don't do long-term medical education missions, so I'm not sure I'm in the right hall. But Bruce has asked me to tell you what we do, which is in medical education to live out Jesus to promote holistic medicine based on being a health professional who has Jesus with them as they do it. And I just go along with all that's been said about modeling, about the need for being alongside. We go in shorter terms to get alongside people at all sorts of different levels. We've so far been to about 34 countries and we continue to go. Mansung is one place amongst many. And we get alongside students or we get alongside faculty. We've been asked in Albania to help with medical curriculum development. We've also been involved in Zambia. Now, these are short terms, but on the other hand, we are also interested in training people there by recurrent visits to build up their same expertise in teaching, to exemplify holistic medicine based on Christ. And we supply information online, books, however, and by repeatedly being in touch with them from afar. We also go to Russia, to some research units there, to some Middle Eastern countries, and there have been people who've come to us to learn who also wanted to go back and set up similar sorts of operation and institution. So these relatively short contacts are nevertheless building up associations, partners across the world in this way. Modelling is key, and that is what we hope to promote. And I think there are opportunities that the Lord gives to move into different places of influence, uh, whether it is by just the undergraduate education in Ukraine that we do, whether it's teaching faculty in Romania that we do, whether it's teaching the curriculum design to build in a holistic manner. One more thing I would add, and that is we are also seeking to influence countries that we don't necessarily consider as mission fields. That is those highly developed countries who believe that they've got medicine taped. The problem, of course, is it's not holistic, Jesus-based medicine. In Singapore last year, I spoke to a group of senior educators, medical educators in that hospital, whose version of what was happening in uh, Singapore in education and in medicine and in society was that it had become inhumane. That's a powerful word, meaning Jesus is absent. So we're going back there to teach teachers to help broaden that out again. And I'm worried, too, that developing countries look to developed countries to model their medical systems. And so where Jesus is missing from our industrial societies, if you will, then we need to develop models there. So we're going back to the UK, where we come from, uh, to see how far we can increase the influence of Christ-centered role model medical teaching in the UK. Because from there, the model will be taken out, whether it's by missionary or secular agencies. That's roughly what we do in three minutes, 45.27 seconds. Is that all right? Very good. Very good, Richard. As always, uh, the, the Brits are always succinct and uh, to the point. And I uh, appreciate it. I'm very you. Thank you very much indeed, Bruce. All right. Thanks so much. So modes of ways, different uh, avenues that medical education can be um, who we are as we are uh, bringing uh, Christ holistically. So let's move on next to um, just a little bit around um, specialty foci in medical education missions. So I've asked, uh, uh, not Dave Thompson, but Bruce Steffes, sorry, uh, sorry, I didn't get that one changed, um, to talk about PACS, Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. I want 
my friend Dick Bransford to talk a little bit more about the education part of what he's been doing over his career, okay, in the, in the area of uh, disability medicine. And then uh, I'll speak a few minutes about family medicine and then I want to t touch on something uh, that I, is dear to my heart at the moment uh, around physician assistants, okay, uh, who often get kind of left off to the side of, of the mix of us, uh, you know, medical types uh, trotting around. So let's uh, hear first from uh, Bruce, if you would. Thank you. The kingdom of God is near. And God is not limited, except that he won't make you obey his voice. And that's where the limitation really is at the greatest thing. Now, you've heard in our hearing today a series of ways that we can serve. A lot of people say, well, there's only one way. That's obviously not true. And because God has called another group to a different way of doing it, there is a way for you to do it. And so that's the exciting thing. Find the peace that God is calling you to, that you have the passion for, and then follow him, because it's really exciting to see what God is doing. Pax has the vision of creating Christian surgeons who actually live the gospel and minister to the sick, but one of the things that we're doing is not just emphasizing medicine, but emphasizing the discipling portion of it, because no matter what I do in the operating room, I might get 70 years of life from that, but if I introduce them to Jesus Christ, they get an eternity of healing, and that's the important thing. We have had 17 years as uh, one of the leaders in the paradigm of medical missions, and we're still reinventing ourselves and still figuring out who we are and still figuring out how to do it. Uh, fortunately, we have lots of critics to help us uh, figure out what we're doing wrong, so it helps. Uh, at the present time, we have 39 graduates, and that seems uh, like a very small number, except that you realize that in sub-Saharan Africa, there are less than 20 surgeons in 20 countries. And so uh, right now with uh, Monrovia, they're lucky if they've got one or two in Liberia. There's only three or four in Sierra Leone. This goes on and on and on and on. Uh, we've graduated six uh, pediatric surgeons, the first of the specialties uh, that we have started with. We're uh, going to be taking the first orthopedic people a year from January, so we're excited about that as well. Uh, we would like to do OBGYN, but we need people to come alongside to help us do that. Uh, we have 65 trainees in place at the present time. That makes us bigger than any general surgical program in the United States. Our budget is somewhat smaller, and uh, that is also an issue. But we have, at the present time, touched, mentored, made a difference in the life of at least 120 young physicians over the course of the 17 years. Uh, I've already mentioned this, and we'd like to add an ENT fellowship and urology as well. So if anybody wants to uh, commit to uh, five to ten years of making a difference, please uh, let me know. Our goal is to create 100 surgeons by 2020. We pick that number clearly out of the air, highly, you know, highly spiritual. Yeah, 100, okay. Um, but what is exciting about it, when we did it, we thought it was nonsense. Uh, right now it looks like we'll hit it by 2019. And so God is blessing it and making a difference. Uh, we are in, um, we have 12 programs in 11 hospitals in 10 countries. Uh, one country that's not on here is Bangladesh, which is East, East Africa. And um, uh, what we would really like to do, of course, is to have at least one, two, or three, or four programs in every one of the African countries, and we need help with that. I can place 12 career surgeons tomorrow. I need 20 by the next uh, three years from now if I can help it. Uh, these are just the countries of our PACS residents. You can see that we're drawing from a fair number of uh, them. We train only Christians in our program. Uh, there are certainly, as you've heard, programs that train non-Christians and, and do the in-the-marketplace kind of thing. Uh, neither one is more spiritual than the other. It's just this is what we are focused on, and uh, these guys are making a tremendous difference. Uh, the majority of mission hospitals do not have surgeons, and it is surgery that makes money for mission hospitals so that now you can actually afford to treat kids and wives. Um, they may not take care of their wife. They may not take care of their kids, but when their genitals are swollen with hernias, they'll pay for that. And so uh, that's literally what happens. Uh, this is where our PACS uh, graduates are working right now. You'll see a fair number of them over in the Ebola countries uh, as well, and five of our surgeons are in the middle of that. And uh, Jerry Brown, who you've seen his pictures wandering around, uh, he's a surgeon who's doing a phenomenal job there. Two of uh, One of our residents just lost two of his family members to Ebola. Uh, it's real. How can you help? We need career missionary surgeons. We need short-termers. We, we had 175 short-termers who came last year because we are American general surgeons and we don't know squat about urology or ENT or uh, orthopedics, and we need help being taught ourselves and our residents as well. Uh, we have task forces trying to keep the academic area, so if you have expertise in any of these things, we would be more than happy to have you help us. And most of all, you need to pray for us. Uh, it is uh, an ongoing battle 
uh, PAX is uh, growing, but it's a house of cards. And it's being held together, fortunately, by God's hand himself. And so it's real good to say, you know, you, you've done a good job. And the answer is, no, I haven't. I'm just sitting there and watching the Lord do it. And that's really fun. Uh, but it uh, is a little nerve-wracking for those of uh, us that don't have as much faith as perhaps some we sometimes should have at times. So pray with us. Uh, we are looking at jumping to that next level. Our budget is uh, tripling in the next three years. Uh, that will put a little sphincter and tightening into an administrator, uh, thinking where that money is going to come from. But again, go back to what I said originally. The kingdom is at hand. There are people dying, and God is unlimited. What he needs is us. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Thank you, Bruce. Thank and, you for the opportunity. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I actually didn't have as much faith as I should have that you get through ten slides in four minutes. That's pretty good. <laughs> If my wife were in this room, yes? Yeah, you're, 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 you just have four minutes as well, though. Yeah, but I only have that many notes. All right. <laughs> if my wife were in this room, she would remind me that uh, for 12 years, we were the home for all the medical students who went to Kajabi, Kenya. And one of the biggest compliments we ever had was, yes, I learned a lot about medicine, but the most important thing is I learned what a Christian family was supposed to live like. So our mentoring is really important. Jesus took 12 people, mentored them for three years, and look what came out of it. Um, When we began working with disabled kids, there was probably one person in all of East Africa doing very much of that. And so we began kind of from scratch, and as I mentioned to some people, uh, with a book beside the, the operating room table at times, And we learned, and you've got an usher over here working in this place. It's an orthopedic surgeon who was one of my biggest mentors who came out and felt that as a specialist, we could teach our specialty skills to people less than specialists. And that was really important. Dick Topazian taught us how to do uh, cleft lips. Uh, We had people that came out and showed us. Uh, Lewis Carter, who some of you have met, a bit about plastic surgery and pediatric urology, and a whole variety of people who were specialists but willing to share those skills with somebody less than a specialist because there was nobody else available. Uh, My fear is Kajabi has grown, as PAX has come in and brought first their general surgical residents to train in pediatric surgery as a remaining as a general surgeon. We began our own pediatric surgery program, but we also eliminated that opportunity for being available to a lot of other people. When a neurosurgeon came in and took took over my place when I retired, most of the neurosurgery now goes to a neurosurgery resident, but not to the general surgeons. If we literally have 2 billion people in the world that don't have access to surgical care, if we have 56 million people in sub-Saharan Africa that need surgery today, as the great, not New England Journal, but New York Times says it is, we've got to train something less than the specialist. And my, as some of you heard, uh, my theory is that we need to take some mechanics and teach them how to do a limited number of operations that can take care of the vast majority of, of surgical cases. Everybody doesn't need to know how to do an esophagectomy. But if we can teach them how to do a C-section, how to do repair a hernia, how to do a shunt, then we'll, we'll be far ahead. Uh, a while back, one, one of my favorite things for the end of my life in Africa was doing shunts and repairing kids with spina bifida and doing club feet and burn contractures. But if there are truly at least 45,000 babies with hydrocephalus born every year, and if the neurosurgeons turn to you and say, well, well, how many are you taking care of? Maybe 5,000. What happens to the rest of the 40,000? Most of them die before they're two years old or what we historically call gorks because they've lost their brain. We need a new model for training people in surgery. And the world's looking at it. Lancet's group is looking at essential surgery. Now, one of the embarrassing things, if people come up to me and say, you know, where can I go and train like this? I don't have a place yet. Bruce is going to get that place. Anyhow, thank you. Thanks, Dick. You know, we take more than four minutes putting these things on and off. I know, I know, I know. That's my curse. I'm sorry.
think the, uh, the message that you're hearing is that because resources in doing and educating are thin across most of these majority world areas, those of us with any skill have to think broad, more broadly than we thought we would have to think. That was Dick's message when I met him, 1980. Remember, you're going to have to do a lot of things. And I took away, well, maybe I should do family medicine, and then I looked to find if I could do some surgery, you know, on top of that. And then I went to a small town in Minnesota, and I did everything except, you know, the surgical, the, the fully surgical stuff, because I had a, you know, center two hours away. Uh, when I got to Kajabi, I was actually in heaven. I had surgeons uh, to take care of everything uh, for me right across the hall. But, of course, when the surgeon uh, was called in to take care of uh, somebody with a bad nosebleed, I got called. All right? I remember Dick, uh, uh, not you, Dick, but, uh, but Peter Bird, you know, saying, Bruce, help! All right? Because he didn't know how to do that. All right? So it goes both ways. And... Uh, the, the area of family medicine is one of those uh, things that uh, has a lot of definitions around uh, the world. And in Africa in 2009, we came together from all the family medicine uh, groups across to, to decide what family was, medicine is for Africa. And it came up with a dif definition that's different than what you have here in uh, America or in the UK. A family physician in Africa is a consultant who's the, uh, to the primary care team. They're not the first contact person. They're not the continuity care person. Those two uh, points are almost inviolable in our understanding in the West, and yet in Africa we can't because there's not enough of us physicians to do the first contact and continuity. Those people are nurses, clinical officers, or otherwise uh, we would call them PAs, um, those are the continuity people. Those are the first contact people. And yet they don't have much of a support system in most of these sub-Saharan Africa uh, district hospitals or their corollaries in other parts of the world. Why? Because the system is set up so that medical officers take one year of training, do their internship, get posted out to these sites, and within a month they're overwhelmed with what they don't know and want to get out of there and become a specialist. So I call it the big churn all right, it's the big churn of medical officers coming, burning out within one year or two years and heading out of there and getting out as fast as possible. No wonder there's a brain drain of, of medical out of Africa. In Kenya, it's probably up to 50% by five years have found another way to move other than being and working and serving within. What does that have to do with family medicine? Well, our goal uh, since we started working with Dan Fountain in 1995 uh, is to work on professionalizing the generalist in these contexts so that they have a specialty to aspire to where they can actually treat and care and be with their people in the village where they came from. How can they get back to that district hospital and serve well, be trained well, so that when they go there, they're actually performing and actually not burning out in that first year. We've been doing that and setting it up in, uh, in uh, sub-Saharan African countries now. Universities are picking it up. Um, what about in our context as missionaries and in church hospital system, which is 30 to 50 percent of the health care across sub-Saharan Africa? Well, the, the, uh, the missionaries that were working in Nigeria back in the 70s and 80s asked that question and said, we need to be a part of that solution and set up family medicine for the first time at the Evangel Hospital in Jos and other hospitals within uh, the, uh, the Nigerian uh, uh, church hospital system. And they, they're a legacy now with most of those, uh, uh, the family uh, the specialty of family medicine in Nigeria is, is being led by those early graduates. They're believers. They're people who believe in, in uh, this holistic approach. I met them again just a few months ago at the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine meeting and reaffirmed uh, the good work that they're doing, Stephen, Johanna, and others. We started our first uh, family medicine uh, program at a Christian university uh, in East Africa will be uh, happening now at Kabarak University, where I'll be uh, leaving next year to be for a couple of years to, to begin that program at Kabarak University. Three church hospitals that have been a part of training so far, Kajabi, Tenwick, and Chigori Hospital will be the leads on that. But then four or five more hospitals that are smaller, Kapsawar, Latane, uh, Gethumu, and so forth, all needed to be uh, raised up as teaching centers so they 
family medicine doc can go work and learn in a site that's 50, uh, the 100 uh, beds or so and work into the community as well. So they get this uh, full rounded training around the, the skills that would bring them back to those settings and uh, do it in doing it well. So that's the family medicine uh, agenda, if you will, in terms of being a part of the solution of not just Africa's but Asia and others. These programs are being set up across the world, both in the secular and in the church setting, all places for where you can serve. Um, we're down to the last 10 minutes, and rather than uh, say uh, much more, I'd like to. We need to leave some time for, for questions because there's been lots of stimulating uh, a conversation uh, that would probably uh, occur uh, given the prompting that we've had from our panelists. And I do want to give uh, some of you a chance to address our, our panelists and myself about uh, questions you might have about uh, getting engaged in a career in uh, being uh, a Jesus person. Uh, healing and discipling um, in the world's vineyard. So let's open up for questions, and uh, I'll try to moderate that best I can. At uh, when you tell us it's uh, time, you all are expected to to move on to another session. But if you want to stay back and uh, and uh, uh, meet and talk with our guests, I'll ask you if you can st stay behind for a couple minutes since ten question time is uh, fairly short. So any questions uh, from the audience? Yes. Okay, credentialing. So I hear the question around uh, the, the uh, task shifting, and Bruce has, I think, the best. Uh, yeah, that's a very real question that has never been adequately addressed. Um, one of the big problems that, that, that everybody has uh, horror stories about is the, um, I think I can be heard, yeah. uh, is the, um, fact that some of these guys go off and then do surgery far beyond their abilities, etc. And so one of the things, in order for this system to really work that the government has never really addressed, is that there has to be within the structure of the country, within the Ministry of Health, within the job uh, career path, the education, the oversight, the, that's all got to be part of it. And uh, it's never really been worked out very well, and that's one of the, one of the real handicaps. Uh, we all do it, uh, but we all have horror stories. And so I absolutely agree with Dick, but it's got to be, it's not just a simple matter of training the people. It's actually a, a holistic approach to the, to the problem. In the one country we go to, the uh, uh, Department of Medicine is non-existent, essentially. And so we can, whatever we can train them in, and I have two young ladies that are about two to four years out of medical school who can put in a shunt, who can fix a club foot, who can um, do burn contracture releases and rotate flaps, there's no credentials in the country, so you don't worry about that. I mean, they are licensed doctors, but that's all you need to be because there are no specialists in the country. Hardly. I think it's uh, important to remember, what is credentialing? What is accreditation? It's society's um, mechanism for assuring the public that what you're doing is within your scope of practice. Can you do that in good conscience if you trained well and have integrity, my, my answer would be yes. All right? So all of us have to push out of our comfort zone if we're going to go do anything in the majority world. So is it going to be you're going to leave them to die versus not attempt to do something? Those questions come up with all of us that have done anything in, in, uh, uh, in majority world. So the question is how far do you go with that and in what context? So the issue is we're always trying to learn more because there's always more to learn. But uh, our, our, our check is our, our integrity, all right? Can I, in good conscience, move ahead? Yeah. Okay, another question. Um, how do you stay abreast on all the evidence-based or most recent, like, innovations in surgery or medical care? How do you keep up with things? I'm going to grab that one, guys. <laughs> That's an entree to the Digital African Health Library, okay? I don't have a slide for it because I didn't want to take time, but you made me take time. And that's uh, basically a... Uh, smartphone-based uh, collection of resources with an integrated search engine that will be out in January 2015 in five countries and five more in 2016, something I've been working on for about 10 years, and it's now coming to fruition. It's going to be available through the Church Health Associations are our partners to distribute this across sub-Saharan Africa, 
And so if you want to come by the AIM booth where I am uh, this morning, I have a brochure on it if you want to learn more about it. And basically it's all on the smartphone. You don't have to hook up to the Internet at all. And uh, a collection of uh, WHO handbooks, Oxford handbooks, the British National Formulary, Africa Health, a continuing education journal, um, Dynamed, which is a journal-based um, collection of uh, evidence, all right, more evidence-based than clinical medicine and more up-to-date than up-to-date is the way they advertise. So anyway, all that for $30 for your first year. It's $1,500, $2,000 worth of uh, materials. I've gotten all these publishers to give us their materials for $0.05 cents on the dollar. So it's, it's one of these gifts of God that I didn't think I was going to get this far, but here I am trying to now peddle this thing. And uh, I won't be peddling it here because it has to be used and bought and used in the uh, developing world. There are many other ways you can get evidence, but I'm telling you about the best one right now. All right. Can you say the name again? Digital African Health Library. And you can look up digitalhealthlibrary.net is the, uh, is the website. Okay. All right. I don't want to take any more questions on that. I'll talk more after. Yes. sort of a follow-up on that. So how do you ensure that when you're looking at up-to-date or Dynamed or whatever, that it's culturally because often it's not. Okay. So here's important entree. Evidence base. How many people have worked uh, any length of time, you know, in, in a majority world country? All right. What I would – I can't tell the whole story, but basically – all of these countries, the standard for what you do is not based on necessarily the evidence. It's based on authority. All right? What did my professor say? What did the, what did the guidelines of the Ministry of Health say? That is what is valued. And that's not wrong because the people in those uh, guideline committees try to give the best evidence. But you shouldn't, I, I feel, you shouldn't go in and just barn through the door saying, well, throw that all away. I've got the evidence. Here's what we ought to do. First of all, you won't get anywhere, all right? You're being culturally inappropriate. But new learners, young learners, people that bump up against this row of, of educators learn the value of evidence base and want to know the evidence and are eager to learn another way of thinking. And so this collection is actually a way of trying to help transform that, that authority, give them the authority. The guidelines from Kenya will be on there, but allow them to move into the evidence base as well. And that's, of course, what our cultural transformation program in family medicine is all about. That's what it is. It's a cultural transformation for how, how education transforms from, from authority, what I say to them as their mentor, to what the evidence shows. I'll be, I'll be teaching in a, in a model that says, so what does the evidence show that you know of so far? All right, let's examine the evidence together, all right, and so forth. And I know that's how you do your work as well in, in surgery. Um, so, yeah. Good questions, though. Mm -hmm. In the back, I'll take. So while you're doing this medical education, what do you do with your non-medical pesky spouses and uh, children? Did you hear that? Yes. Well, my wife's not pesky. <laughs> well, no. They're um, spouses and families. There's not one of us up here that won't uh, be able to confess that we can easily get too busy and neglect those families and uh, wives and spouses that uh, God's given us. And Dick gave a great testimony, uh, and I think, which is that he, through his life, and I witnessed it for working with him for 20 years, you know, made it a, a, a high um, priority to be um, um, able to, 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 to stop what he's doing and be able to move on. Now, he got up at 4 in the morning. All right, to get those things done, his time with the Lord, his time with his family, get those rounds done, get those operations done. His life was never unbusy, but he was able, with God's grace, to focus. I'll just tattle on him to be sure that, you know, those important parts of our lives were not neglected because that is the first uh, sin that often most of us have is neglecting important things for what we think is important. One of the things I would add to that is that we used to walk in the operating room in the morning and I would say to our staff, I have an emergency at 4 o'clock. And they all knew what it meant. My kids played soccer at 4 o'clock. And we'd work like crazy. I didn't always get to my emergency, but we worked hard as a team. There you go. Declaring family emergencies. Careers, I think, is what maybe 
Oh, I went to them? Yes. Careers and, and having them. Many of the, you know, many of our, of our spouses and, and uh, people are also, you know, have professional um, training as well. And I, I, when people come to the booth and ask about that, I basically say there isn't a person that God can't use in his kingdom. All right? Mechanical nuclear engineer was one spouse yesterday. All right? Um, How is he going to work in the jungles of Africa, if you will? Um, you know what? You might have to be flexible about whether you're going to be maintaining a nuclear power plant, okay? Bruce, yeah. I, I, I would add to that. My, my wife is an elementary school teacher, and her work is every bit as important as mine in medical education. Mm-hmm. And respecting her professional abilities and the work that she has done in the places that we have been, it has been huge watching her transform those young lives. Amen. I'm going to have to close it down since my minder has said... Cut. The conversation always just gets going, and unless I was going to just do a free-for-all, um, we wouldn't have a chance to hear. So let's thank our panelists. And, and I'm not sure if there's another group coming in, but at least uh, feel free to come up and avail yourself of them uh, now. I've got to go to another panel. Yeah, thanks so much, Stan.